Happy Mother's Day. It's good. And in a world that, in a society that really denigrates motherhood, that really downplays it, that always tries to assert that there's something better for women out there than being a mother, we need to, in our hearts, affirm what the Scripture says with the intensity that the Scripture says it. You could think of it this way. There is a real danger, and I speak here not just about this issue, but in every issue of our society, that when our culture permits something, then the church begins to find it more acceptable. The culture permits something like divorce. The culture permits something like sexual immorality. The culture permits something like transgenderism. And all of a sudden, the church's conscience, the church's sharpness on these issues is abated because everyone around them in media and the way things are presented and the way things are discussed say, well, it's okay. It's not a big deal. And all of a sudden, we become more and more comfortable with which we should never be more comfortable with. And the same thing goes with motherhood. The, and it may be a little bit inverse here, but the culture says, well, yeah, motherhood, maybe it's nice, specifically on Mother's Day. We want that, to celebrate that with Hallmark and everything. And, but other than that, it's really not that big of a deal. And that curtails the church's enthusiasm, the church's zeal, the church's viewpoint and affirmation and enthusiasm for motherhood. But the Bible elevates motherhood. The Bible elevates and champions being a mother. And we never want, because our society has doled it out, to ever become dull in our presentation and thinking on this matter. We want to have the same intensity that the Bible has about the subject, the role of women as mothers. And there's a lot of texts in Scripture that talk about motherhood. As we think about what to teach on on this day of Mother's Day, you could approach this from a lot of different perspectives. We could walk through the biblical storyline and talk about motherhood, starting with Eve, the mother of all the living. We could talk about individuals like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel. We could talk about Moses's mother and her bravery. We could talk about bad mothers throughout redemptive history, like Jezebel and Athaliah, who I often call the culmination of all evil Disney women combined. And she, that's Athaliah. Because she murders all of the almost everyone in the royal line. She's that wicked. But we have good mothers, we have bad mothers, and from Genesis all the way to Malachi, there is an emphasis on motherhood because in Malachi, God asks his people, What have I always been seeking? And the answer that he gives in Malachi is godly seed godly seed and the parents including mothers to raise them and it's not just in the old testament that you find this emphasis it's in the new testament you have it as we heard this morning with mary and elizabeth and you have it in not only the gospels but you have it in the epistles with exhortations about mothers in the pauline epistles but even in the pastoral epistles you have timothy raised by eunice and lydia these are individuals who invested themselves in one generation after another generation after another generation. And so from Old Testament to New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, mothers play a crucial role. In fact, 
it illustrates the exact truth that Paul discusses at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 2, that women shall be saved through childbearing. And on the one hand, what this text does not mean is exactly what Pastor John recalls when he was traveling the world and he was at a pastor's conference in another country and a bunch of pastors asked him, what does that verse mean? And he said, well, whatever it means, it does not mean that women have to have children and lots of children to be saved. And as those words exited his mouth, the whole room became completely still. And a bunch of women, whose 10 to 12 children were all in the back of the room, being a little noisy, looked at their husbands. <laughs> you had a conference on rightly dividing the word of truth, and everyone says amen. And they said, you said amen out of all the texts to not rightly divide. You not rightly divide that one? Yeah, that would be a problem. While that verse does not mean exactly what Dr. MacArthur said, it did not mean. On the other hand, here's what it does mean. It means this, that in the context of the woman in the garden being deceived, and that there is a stigma that is born by that, the way that women overcome that stigma is not by avoiding their role. It is by living in their role. It is not by bypassing or doing something different, but by actual obedience to what God has ordained. Because that role, the role of being a mother, and we are speaking here generically about womankind, so to speak, but by doing and engaging in that role, that is the way that God has advanced redemptive history ultimately and culminatively in the Messiah. It isn't by coming up with a new role, a new system, a new function, a new operation that one redeems oneself from the stigma that has occurred in Genesis 3. It is actually by obedience because obedience is beautiful and motherhood is beautiful and God uses mothers. You could think of it this way just to illustrate Paul's point and just to illustrate everything we've been saying you have a lot of genealogies in the scripture, do you not? You have them in Genesis. You have them in Ruth. You have them in Chronicles. You have them in the New Testament, like in Matthew and in Luke. Why does the Bible have genealogies? Because it is tracing God's faithfulness and his faithful pursuit of advancing his people, preserving his people unto the deliverance of the deliverer unto the presentation of the Savior. That is what genealogies are all about. Well, how do you have biologically a genealogy? You have mothers. You have mothers. And so Paul's point, and really he is echoing and reiterating Scripture's point, is that God uses mothers. Contrary to the society's perspective on these things, which is completely irrational if you think about it. On the one hand, society says everything's about survival of the species. On the other hand, in the same breath, they are denigrating the very means of their survival. But in any case, the Bible is clear. God uses mothers. This is a noble calling. This is a wonderful calling. And whether you have been a mother for one year or for many, many years, over 70 the Lord is using you. The Lord is using you. Of course, 
this, all of this, and the Scripture's breadth on this, and the Scripture's depth on this, raises a dilemma for preachers. And the dilemma is this. What do you preach on Mother's Day, given the plethora of riches in the Scripture on this topic? On the one hand, you might say, well, I could preach something positive, and then all the dads get mad. We always get convicted on Father's Day. Why do you always have to preach something nice for moms? Okay, so then you preach something negative. We are equal. We are equal opportunity offenders. We will do that. And then you get flack for that. And then people say, well, I'm not a mother. Do I even have to pay attention to your message? Uh, and, then, and then you get all these kinds of feedback. And so what do you do? I understand. I understand very well because I had to figure this out. And then what passage do you pick? And what's always the typical one? Proverbs 31. And what happens when you do Proverbs 31? You hit all of the issues that I just said. Because for some people, Proverbs 31 is so encouraging. Thank you for preaching that to us. And for others, Proverbs 31 is the most discouraging thing because you think, who is this woman? (laughs) How is this possible? (laughs) I understand. And so you can never win. So as I was praying through this, as I was tackling this very tricky problem, I thought, well, instead of preaching the last half of Proverbs 31, which is the Proverbs 31 woman, why not tackle the first part, which I think is actually more appropriate for Mother's Day than even Proverbs 31, 10 and following. Turn there to Proverbs 31, 1. You say, why do you think Proverbs 31, 1 through 9, which is the first part of this passage, which is not usually covered at all, if not even particularly on Mother's Day, is quite appropriate for this occasion? Notice verse 1, the words of Lemuel, the king, the oracle unto which his mother disciplined him. You want to know what a mother does? Why not go to the text which tells you what a mother does? And this passage is pertinent to all. Because this passage isn't just telling what a mother should be or what a mother should teach. It does do that. But it is also teaching and instilling in us what we all should do to abide by that counsel. If you want to be wise, if you are a child of a mother, if you are an individual who wants to make sure that you receive godly counsel, Proverbs 31, 1 through 9 is your text. This is the words of a wise woman, a wise mother, to all children, to all people who desire to live godly. And so this is the most relevant text for Mother's Day Because it is for mothers, but it's from mother to all those who desire to live godly. This is this wonderful text. And I will say this on a personal note. One of the joys of preaching is being forced and compelled in the best of ways to study things more in depth than you ever have before. And coming through this text and combing through this text I have been so blessed. I was even telling my family one evening, man, I could spend an hour on verse one. And then, you know, that's a danger sign because they all look at me and they say, how many verses were you planning to preach? Nine. (laughs) And they said, Abba, just keep it short. Let people have a Mother's Day. Yep, okay. Message learned. We have three points here, verses one through nine. Three points about 
embodying wisdom, about being wise. Three points that a mother gives to all children who desire to live godly in this world. And here's the first point. Personify wisdom. Personify wisdom. Proverbs 31, verse 1. The words of King Nemuel, an oracle unto which his mother disciplined him. Who is this King Lemuel? Well, by tradition, most people assert that the individual is Solomon, and that, I think, is a very acceptable answer. But there are a lot of questions that we have in this text already. One, why is Solomon not just called Solomon? That would make life easier. Two, why is his mother mentioned? To be clear, we know that the person writing this, these are the words of this King Lemuel, this Solomonic individual. We know he's the inspired author. We understand that. Nevertheless, he is talking about and quoting from and citing and alluding to his mother. If these are his words, if this is what he learned, why does he even mention his mother to begin with? Why does that happen? There's always a reason for why God does what he does and why authors under inspiration write what they write. And in this case, the context so clearly defines why Solomon is talking about, even as he is writing, he is talking about his mother. And that is because if you think about the book of Proverbs, wisdom is not only discussed, wisdom is personified. Wisdom in the book of Proverbs is often described as a woman, lady wisdom. One of the clearest texts where this takes place is in Proverbs chapter 9. In fact, Proverbs chapter 9 is the culmination of an entire argument that has been happening in the book of Proverbs, an entire agenda where wisdom is laid out systematically for a child in the royal court. You hear it over and over in Proverbs 1 through nine, my son, my son, my son, if you have heard my teaching, if you have heard the words of your mother, my son, my son, my son, and having bombarded a son with such instruction, Proverbs 9 is the conclusion of that entire discussion. And you have a picture, you have a picture of two women, two women calling from the housetops. One in Proverbs 9 is Lady Wisdom. And she is calling. And in fact, she even says, come to me, accept my discipline. Proverbs 9, verse 7, which is fascinating because notice in Proverbs 31, it also talks about Solomon's mother and how she disciplined him. In any case, there is Lady Wisdom, but there is also Lady Folly, who talks about how sin is sweet and thievery is a blessing. And you have these two women personifying two different ideals, personifying two different systems of thought and life. And they both call to this young man. One is used to call to something, and the other one is used as a warning so that you never, ever get close. But it all demonstrates a simple truth. Throughout the book of Proverbs, wisdom is a woman. Wisdom is personified as a woman. And you see that actually throughout the book of Proverbs. Whether you're talking about wisdom or you're talking about folly, you often have 
those two things personified as actual women. In Proverbs 5 and 7, you have Lady Folly personified as the woman who's the adulterous woman. She embodies all the characteristics that are discussed by Lady Folly and by Folly in general in Proverbs 9. Likewise, in Proverbs 12 and 14 and 18 and 19, you have all these descriptions of women. Proverbs 12, 4, the excellent wife. You've heard that before, yes? That's the Proverbs 31 woman. Well, you met her way before Proverbs 31. You met her in Proverbs chapter 12. She's there, and she's a real woman. And Proverbs 14.1 talks about the wise woman. And Proverbs 18.22 talks about he who finds a woman, who finds a good thing. And Proverbs 19.4 likewise does the same thing. He who has a wife has insight. All of these things show a pattern that in the book of Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs, Wisdom is a woman. Wisdom is personified by a woman. And there's one more step beyond that. And there are women who embody her. Let me say that again. In the book of Proverbs, what we have is that wisdom is personified by a woman, Lady Wisdom. And Proverbs takes it one step further and says, and there are women, real women, who embody her. They are the embodiment of lady wisdom. They are the personification of the personification of wisdom. They are the presentation of lady wisdom herself. They are lady wisdom, you could say, in the flesh. That's what we're talking about. And once you understand that, then you can answer the question. Actually, you can answer two questions. One's a bonus But the fundamental question is, why does Solomon talk about his mother? It's simple, because his point is this. All this time I've been talking about wisdom. I've been talking about lady wisdom. How did I know her? I knew her through my mother, because she, my mother, is the embodiment, the personification of wisdom. By the way, by the way, Who is Proverbs 31 woman? She also is Lady Wisdom. And the final message of Proverbs is, be Lady Wisdom, marry Lady Wisdom. And what happens in marriage? The two become one. Be one with wisdom. Be one with wisdom. And that applies to men and women. That applies to everyone. You could think of it this way. Proverbs, if you want alliteration, Proverbs 31, 1 through 9 is lady wisdom as a mother. Proverbs 31, 10 and following is lady wisdom in marriage. That's why the book ends with what it ends with. Because you've been introduced this whole time to lady wisdom. Now you just need to meet her in the flesh. Now you just need to be her in the flesh. Now you just need to be one with her for the rest of your life. And so Proverbs 31 is not disconnected from the rest of the book of Proverbs. It's the conclusion of it. It's the application of it. That's what's going on here. And let us not miss, then, what's going on in Proverbs 31, verse 1. What do we take from just the overarching idea? Mothers, to your children, you are to be Lady Wisdom. Mothers, when your children see you, 
They need to see someone who embodies Scripture, who embodies the Proverbs, who embodies wisdom. For us, as the fellow people of God, when we encourage women and what we want in women, you might say, do we want them to be smart? Sure. Do we want them to be intelligent? Fine. Do we want them to be biblical? Yes. Do we want them to be beautiful? Of course. But how do we really envision and how do we really encourage and what do we really laud in women? One word, wisdom. Wisdom. That's what we want to see in women. Wisdom. We want to see people who are wise. We want to see Lady Wisdom personified. Lady Wisdom embodied. That's what we want to encourage every woman, every person here. And of course, even for ourselves, man or woman, we want to have wisdom so emanating from our lives that the first word that someone thinks about when they think of you is, what a wise person. That person it's like wisdom itself. That's what we desire. And, and how, do we, how do we do that? How do we be lady wisdom personified? How do mothers become lady wisdom personified? How do we emulate that even in our own lives? Let me just give three quick observations on verse 1, just by way of illustration. First, it's your purpose. You need to have the purpose of wisdom. You say, well, what is that? Well, look at the opening words. The words of Lemuel the king. King Lemuel. What does Lemuel mean? It means this. Dedicated to God. Possessed by God. Owned by God. One who is completely surrendered to God. How does a mother embody wisdom? Simple. What is her purpose for her children. It needs to be one thing and one thing alone, that your children are going to be dedicated to Yahweh, possessed by Yahweh, owned by him, surrendered to him. Now I know that it is impossible for us to change people's hearts as much as we wish we could have that power. And I know that it is only by the work of God and regeneration that people's lives are renewed and transformed. I recognize all of that. But nevertheless, when we teach our children and when we instruct them, though we cannot change them and we cannot ultimately coerce them to that end, I recognize that, but we are always pointing them not just to behavioralism, not just to a therapeutic mindset, not just to superficial change. What we are telling our children and pointing them always to through the gospel unto God, we are saying what I hope for your life, no matter what, is that you would be known as an individual who is dedicated to God. That is what we teach that is what we proclaim. That is what we purpose. And whether or not they listen and whether or not the Lord does a work in their heart, that is something that we have no control over and it makes us all the more prayerful. But it does not, and that reality does not excuse us from nevertheless declaring, proclaiming, urging, exhorting, pointing to make sure that our children know <coughs> that the reason 
we stand up for what is right and wrong and the reason that they are being disciplined and the reason that we say yes and we say no, there is, it isn't just for our convenience. It isn't just to make them more marketable. It isn't just so that they get a good job. It is so that they are dedicated to God. That is our heart's desire. If you want to embody wisdom, that's what you want to have as your purpose as a parent. And frankly, if you want to embody wisdom at all, that's the purpose you have for yourself. You say, in my life, I want to be dedicated to God. I want to be Nemuel, possessed by Yahweh, possessed by God. That's one way to personify wisdom. Here's another one. It's not just by your purpose, it's by your proclamation. Notice the next phrase. The words of Lemuel, the king, an oracle. Oracle. The word oracle means revelation. It denotes a weighty burden of God's divine utterance, of what comes from the scriptures. And to be clear, again, Solomon is the one who's writing here, and he's quoting his mother, and his mother was not working under the inspiration of the Spirit in that sense, as if she was some divine revelational bringer, a prophetess, or something of the like. Rather, what did his mother do? His mother constantly declared Scripture. The reason this is called an oracle is because it is, because she's quoting the Bible, which is an oracle. She's quoting the weighty Scriptures and allowing the scriptural weight to weigh heavily upon Solomon in his life in the hope that God's spirit will utilize that to convict his heart. What should be coming out of our mouths as parents, as we give wisdom, as we give insight, needs to be scripture. Not just platitudes, not pop psychology, not the newest and hippest trends, not just the new cycle. It should be scripture. It should be scripture. What Solomon remembered about his mother was the scriptural oracle that she gave to him. And if you actually study Proverbs 31, 1 through 9, you'll see very quickly this is all just rehashing in a good way, in the best of ways, what God has already declared. That's what we give to our children. That's what we have for ourselves. That's what we have in discipleship. And as we are being discipled in whatever relationship there is, it is the oracle of God. So you need to have the right purpose. You need to have a purpose that of dedication to God. You need to have the right proclamation. And it's not yourself, and it's not your ideology, and it's not your logic. It's just the scripture. But then you need to have the right practice, the right practice. And notice, what does it say in the text, which his mother disciplined him unto? It's about discipline. Discipline is used here to remind us that Solomon's mother is the embodiment of wisdom. She is the embodiment of wisdom because throughout the book of Proverbs, wisdom disciplines all the time. Even in Proverbs chapter 1, there is a cry of wisdom, heed my discipline, accept my discipline. Discipline is part and parcel of what wisdom does. Discipline has fallen out of vogue in our society today. Discipline, though, has two sides to it. The part that our society really doesn't like is the major part of discipline, which is the negative side, which is the confrontation and the rebuke and the punishment and the chastisement and the chastening against sin. We don't like that for ourselves. That's actually biblical. The Bible explains to us that we don't like it in Hebrews 12. 
But nevertheless, the Bible reminds us that it's absolutely necessary. We need that. You want to embody wisdom? Do the work that wisdom does. Don't shy away from it. Don't run away from the confrontation. Don't run away from the duty and the delight and the necessity of reproving sin and dealing with it. It's necessary. It's good. You cannot expect to embody wisdom if you do not do what wisdom does. Wisdom disciplines. That's what you learn all the time in Proverbs. But there's another side to this. See, the word for wisdom, or the word for discipline, rather, has not only the punitive notion, but it's the full correction that takes place. Sometimes when we discipline, why do we do it? To get people to stop doing something, to make them cease. The, you know, the kid is screaming in the grocery store. That's embarrassing. Quit it. And that's our mentality about it. But that's incomplete. Discipline is not just what you put off. Discipline is what you put on. It's the whole thing. Correction is not just meant to punish. Correction is meant to push someone to something. This is what you should be doing. This is what you should be conformed to. If discipline is missing that element, you don't have full discipline. All you have is punishment. Is it important to do that? Yes, but it's incomplete, and that's why children become bitter. Because all they think of is punitive. And they don't understand why they should do something other than the fear of the, of the rod. Is there space for that? Is there need for that? Yes, but you've given an incomplete picture. We discipline so that we inherit Christ's and we participate in Christ's righteousness. That's what Hebrews reminds us. Here, his mother, you could think of it this way, disciplined him, that is Solomon, so that he would say all the words that he says in this passage. Did he learn his lesson? And the answer is, yes, he did. He did. He didn't just think of his mother's work as punitive, as just punishment, as just hurtful, and that's it. He actually learned his lessons. And that's the goal of true discipline, is to both punish the wrong, but have our children learn what is right. And whether you are a parent or we are thinking of this for ourselves and self-discipline in that regard, whether it be our relationship with our biological children, spiritual children, or our relationship with our Heavenly Father, we know we need to remember the value of wisdom. If you want to embody wisdom, do the work of wisdom. If you want to be the personification of wisdom, then you have to do what wisdom does. And Solomon blesses his mother for being that. How, what do we learn from the wise words and the wise actions of a wise mother? First of all, we learn our job, whether you are a mother or you are a child of a mother, it's to personify wisdom. It's to personify wisdom in our purpose, our proclamation, and our practice. Well, with that in mind, Lady Wisdom, personified by Solomon's mother, has some counsel for us through Solomon himself. This is what he learned through her discipline. 
And that brings us to the second point. It's not just that you personify wisdom. Here's the second point, which is really her major content and substance of her counsel. Don't pilfer your life. Don't pilfer your life. And you can see this in verses 2 through 7. Verses 2 through 7. <clears throat> what is the concern of a mother? What, what should be the overriding concern of a mother? What, what should be the one thing? We always like you know, minimizing and simplifying. Well, this is as simple as you get. What is the one thing that, a, that should possess a mother that thereby should possess every child, should possess thereby everyone who lives, wants to live godly? What is the one thing that is the overriding concern, the overriding outcome of our lives? Well, Solomon's mother makes it very clear, as Solomon recounts, what that has to be, and that that is indeed the case. Look at verse 2. What is it, my son? That's what she's asking. She's asking the question, what do you think I'm concerned about? As a mother to her son, this is the overriding concern of the entire relationship. This is what a mother, by virtue of being a mother, should actually care the most about. Notice the next phrase. What, what, what is it? Oh, son of my womb. This is about all of her love. Obviously, mothers share a physical, a biological connection between mother and child, and that forms an inseparable bond, so to speak, one that's deep and physical, thereby emotional, one that is filled with a unique kind of love distributed and described throughout the scriptures. We understand that, and it's encapsulated here. So the idea is, what should be a, a, the driving concern between a mother and her child, her son? What should be the culmination? of everything that she loves about her child and all the love that she has for a child, how should that be expressed? What should that love drive, in other words? And here's another one. What is it, O son of my vows? This is actually a very, very convicting concept. Why, why call your child child of your vows? What is a vow? A vow is a promise that you make to God when he does something. It's very simple. A vow is a promise that you make to God when he does something. A vow is a promise that you make to God that your life will change. Your life will be different because of what God has done in your life. In other words, because of the intervention of God, you make a commitment, you dedicate yourself that your life will be defined and characterized differently from this point forward. It will never be the same again. That is why it's significant that Jonah, for example, or the sailors in the story of Jonah pay their vows. Because what it demonstrates is that the moment of their deliverance, that's the sailors' deliverance in Jonah 1, didn't just stop when they got to dry land. Their whole life was different. They paid vows. They made commitments. Their life changed. Their life was different before the boat ride and after. A vow is a commitment to the Lord that because of what God has done, my life will never be the same again. That's true of salvation, but here's something to think about. That's true of motherhood. That's true of parenting. Vows are often indicative of God's spectacular and supernatural work. Is not conception that? For some people here I know, and we've walked through it together, it's been difficult to conceive and have children. 
Sometimes it's very difficult uh, to carry the pregnancy to term. We understand these things, and, and these are painful things. And so we know that, as Job put it in Job chapter 3, conception and pregnancy and birth and having children, that is the providence of God. That is the providence of God. But here's the result of that. Your life is never the same again. Not just because your life has changed demographically. It's because at that moment, especially as believers, we have made a commitment to God that our life will be different because we have a family now. That our life is different and it has shifted because we have a new set of priorities, priorities given by the scripture. We understand that. And here is what we must remember, motherhood. And we encourage mothers in this. We remind mothers of this. If you are a mother, you are in this. This is your vow. This is your commitment before the Lord. This is your accountability to him. And whether you are a mother and you need to remind yourself of this truth, or we are with mothers and encourage them in these truths, this is the truth. This is the truth. And here's what Solomon's mom says. Son, I'm your mother. What should my life be about? Son, I love you. You're the son of my womb. What should life all be all about? Son, I made a vow to God. I have such a high duty and responsibility and stewardship. What should my life be about? What should your life be about? Verse 2 gives us a threefold reminder. If there's only one thing that you need to be concerned about, one thing, this is it. And what is that one thing? It's simple. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Don't pilfer it. Don't throw it away. How could you throw it away? What are some ways you could do that? Well, verse 3 gives us one way. You associate with bad people. You associate with bad people. Don't give your excellence to women. Don't give your excellence to women. And we know that this deals with the matter of sexual purity and that throughout the book of Proverbs, there have been so many warnings against this. Proverbs 3 warns us against this. Proverbs 5 warns us against this. 6, can you take fire into your bosom and not be burned? That's a metaphor for sexual immorality. And in Proverbs 7, we have the adulterous woman. We have the warning about this all over the place. And it really fills out all of those warnings in context, what it means that you give your excellence, as it says in the text, to a woman you really would waste your life if you did this, if you, if you had intimacy with somebody that was not your spouse. You, you give your excellence away in the sense that you could give it away physically because excellence does pertain to one's physicality. You can die from these kinds of encounters. You could have a really mad husband who also just kills you. That's another way to die. You could lose all of your possessions. That's another way to have it. That's what Proverbs also talks about in Proverbs 5. And so whether it is who you are and or what you own or even your strength and vitality, all of those things in excellence in that regard, you could lose it all. You could lose it all in this way. You could waste your life by interacting with the wrong person the wrong way. You could lose your nobility, your moral virtue, and your courage. You can lose that as well. That's part of excellence because you've disqualified yourself. You disqualified yourself. You are the worst hypocrite. 
You are no longer pure. You are no longer blameless. These things are true. You could give your excellence away. And once you do, it's not that life is over, but life of a certain caliber is out of your reach. It's out of your reach. Is there forgiveness? Of course there is. That's the beauty of the gospel. But there are consequences, and the consequences are weighty. And that's very, very true for a king. Remember, this is Solomon's mother talking to Solomon, and Solomon's a king. In fact, we know that because it says so in verse 1, King Lemuel. In Deuteronomy 17, there is a warning of the law against three Gs. We should know this by now. You have the warning against gold. You have the warning, that's gold. You have the warning of giddy up, those are horses. And then you have the warning of gals, those are women. Don't multiply them. Because that's exactly how a king could just waste away and disqualify his life. And we know that happened with Solomon, did it not? All three of those came true, and at that point he lost his entire kingdom. He lost his entire kingdom. You can be disqualified. It's possible. This sin carries such a weight that Solomon's mother warns him about it. And at this point, you might be saying, but I'm not a king, so I don't really have to care. And, and I don't really struggle with this issue. Some people don't. Okay, so it doesn't really apply to me. Well, at, hold the phone there. What we have to ask ourselves is why is Solomon's mother emphasizing this sin above all sins and wording it the way that she does? And it's a simple answer, because this kind of relationship is the culmination of all human relationships, all human intimacy, with the most dramatic consequences, with the most damaging effects. But it is thereby, because it is the highest point, you're arguing from greater to lesser, it is the culmination of all relationships, and what therefore is true at the highest point is true at the lowest point. This is what is indicative of any friendship, any friendship. And here in this text, there is a warning by principle on the ultimate level, you don't give yourself away to the wrong person, but thereby on every level then you have to watch out for yourself. Be careful who your friends are. And that warning is embodied throughout the book of Proverbs, starting with Proverbs 1. Interestingly enough, it says, Lady Wisdom comes to the son in the royal court and says, if your friends say to you, come, let us shed blood, you don't go with them. Be careful who your friends are. Be careful who you associate with. Yes, in the most intimate way, definitely be careful. But in every way, be careful. Be careful about the friends you keep, the way they influence you, and what you put forth because of them. Be watchful about that. Watch your friends. Watch your associations. Because bad company does corrupt good morals. And when your, when your morals are corrupted, you're disqualified. You'll never get there. This is the counsel we give to people, but this is the counsel we need to receive, is it not? You could think of it this way, on the ultimate sense, and I love the wording here. It's don't have the wrong relationships, have the right relationships. See this. Notice the wording. Do not give your excellence to women. And what is the Proverbs 31 woman called? What is the Proverbs 31 wife called? A what kind of woman who can find? A excellent woman who can find? Here's the point. You don't give your excellence to the wrong woman. 
Rather, you marry the excellent woman. Don't have the wrong relationships. Oh, you can give your excellence away. Just make sure it's to the excellent woman who is your wife. That's the point. You want to know how to throw away your life? Here's one way. Be with the wrong people. Be with the wrong people. Here's another one. Have the wrong purpose. Have the wrong purpose. Notice the last part of verse 3. Your ways to that which blots out kings. Solomon says, look, maybe you are resilient against people, and you're very discerning when it comes to friends. Maybe that's true, but here's a danger for you. You can, you can veer your life off course and waste your life because you are totally distracted, because you have dedicated yourself to the wrong goal, to the wrong outcome. And here, Solomon, notice he doesn't just say your way in general. He says your ways plural, because he's examining every single facet and decision and aspect and characteristic and component of your life. And he says, you can, you can dedicate yourself or you could dedicate one part of yourself to the wrong goals. And the goals that are errant are many. People dedicate themselves to fame. People dedicate themselves to money. People dedicate themselves to dreams and fantasies. People dedicate themselves to making a difference. People dedicate themselves to love. People dedicate themselves to family or power or entertainment or fun or sports. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. And some of these, they might, they might actually be benign at face value. And some of them, they look good. But Proverbs 16 reminds us that there is a way that is good unto man, but its end is what? Death. You can, you can dedicate yourself to the wrong thing, and it's not, it's not just that you just wasted your life. Notice what Solomon's mother tells him. Your ways to that which blots out kings. Solomon, you could waste your life so terribly that people in the history books will want to erase you from existence as a king because you are so bad, because you are so useless. They can't erase you because you existed and you're a king. And it's going to be a little weird to explain how the line of kings jumped a generation, but they sure wish they could. You're that bad. You don't want to be that kind of person where your life is not just so wasted. People want to get rid of you. People want to forget about you. They will do anything to suppress your memory because you are so worthless. You know, as parents, uh, we can be crazy with our children. We can want all kinds of things for them. Academics. We want them to learn calculus by seven. <laughs> you know, sometimes we want them to be an athlete. We want them to get drafted by 13. And let them have a great career. Music. Yeah, let's them play in Carnegie when they're four. That's the way to do it. We want them to be healthy. We want them to appreciate nature. We want them to have this job and not that job. Sometimes when a kid comes in and says, I want to do this for the rest of my life, our first words are no. No, you don't. And it's not because the vocation is sinful. That would be right to say no. It's because we just are embarrassed by it or we think it wouldn't be worthwhile or whatever it may be. Parents, we can be crazy 
And often what we do is so funny is we live vicariously through our children and we want them to be everything that we are not. It kind of reminds me uh, of sometimes when somebody says to me, oh, Abner, your kids are so relaxed. And I say, oh, yeah, that's because I was never relaxed as a kid. So I want them to be relaxed. (laughs) Just kidding. But we want all kinds of things for our children. But here's what Solomon's mother said. Don't give your ways to that which blots out kings. What we need to be reminding ourselves and our children and anyone we come in contact with is, I don't care if you're a trash man or the president of the United States. I don't care if you're the best academic or the best athlete. I don't care if you like vegetables or not. And for me, you know, I prefer not. I mean, I don't care. I just want you to be Lemuel. I just want you to be dedicated to God. And if you are that, then I am happy. And I have done my job. And God has answered every single prayer for my existence. That's all I want. That's all I care about. Nothing else truly matters. That must be our heart. We don't want our children to waste their life by dedicating themselves to the wrong thing. Therefore, do not put the wrong thing in front of them as that which they should dedicate their life to. That is absolutely critical. We must make sure that they know what we really care about. And by the same token, we must make sure we really care about that. We need to take a good inventory of our own soul, a good look at ourselves, and say, is it really true that not just my general way, singular, but each of my ways, plural, every decision, every allocation of time, everything in my life, every dedication, every commitment, every facet and aspect is not unto that which destroys kings, but unto dedication to God. Is that really true of me? That's what we want in our children's lives, but first, that's what should be in our own lives. And by the way, Solomon's mother, who embodies wisdom, she's the personification of wisdom, here's what she understands. If you get the right purpose, then everything else falls into place. If you have the right heart, and the right drive, and the right goals, and the right aim, then everything else falls into place. Well, how do you throw away your life? You can have bad people, and you can have it through bad purpose. You can also have it through bad possessions. Bad possessions, look at verse 4 and 5 and 6 and 7. There's a lot of information on this. And notice, there is a warning given twice. Do not, O Lemuel, It's not for kings. It is not for kings to drink wine or for princes to desire strong drink. Why warn about this twice? Why make it so emphatic? It's simple, because this possession was around the king by virtue of culture, by virtue of his social class, by virtue of his social standing. He had this all around him all the time. It was right in front of him, and his mother then has to warn him because it is so ever-present. And her counsel is, don't drink. Don't be controlled by the influence of this beverage. Don't be swayed. 
Don't be manipulated by this. Why? What happens? What happens when you are that way? Look at verse 5. Lest you drink, forget what is prescribed, change justice for all those who are afflicted. It's fascinating, the language here. The phrase drink, forget, change in Hebrew is yishte, yishkach, yishna. Do you hear how, simple, how that's all alliterated? It just flows right off the tongue. Why? Because that's exactly how it happens when you drink. You take a sip, then all these things just start to cascade. It's automatic. It's automatic. That's what Solomon's mother is reminding him of. And what happens? One, you forget what you're supposed to do, especially as a king. Notice you forget. He forgets what is prescribed. You say, well, what does that even mean? Well, you forget what the law by principle has. There's a lot of different words for the law and a lot of different parts of the law. You can have case law. You can have specific commands about specific situations. You can have legal verdicts. But what is prescribed denotes the principles that govern all laws, that are applied by all laws, that are implemented by specific commandments and statutes. The precepts are what are prescribed, are the legal principles that organize everything in the law. They're the pure theology of the law. And whenever you make a decision, you don't just go by case law, that's part of it. But what you really do in decision-making at all throughout the scripture is you're always making sure you get the principle of the matter and making sure that your life or whatever question you have is aligned with that principle. And not only that, you have to make sure you get all the principles. Just because one passage allows you to do something doesn't mean that the whole counsel of God's word when considered would actually allow you to do that. And so to make the best decision, you have to take the whole counsel of the word of God and have it to come to bear on any good situation. That's actually the art of wisdom. Wisdom is making sure you take the whole Bible and making sure you know it so that when you look at a situation, you look at everything in that situation according to everything the Bible says, and then you make the best God-honoring decision because you've done it according not just to part of God's word, but to all of it. But here's the warning that Solomon's mom gives. When you're under the influence, you're going to forget things. You're going to forget certain principles. And that means at that moment, you didn't make the right decision. And people's lives and people's livelihood and, yea, verily, an entire nation is harmed because you weren't all there. Because you weren't all there. You forget what you should be doing. You forget what you should be doing. And here's the other side of it. You don't do what you should do. You don't do what you should do. It says this, justice changes. He changes justice. What is this word justice? The word justice is when someone appeals in a court case for the law to be implemented. It's when someone appeals for an administrative decision to occur. It's, it's about the court of law. It's about the issue of the legal implementation and the administrative implementation of things. And we, we see this all the time. That's what the courts exist to do. They exist to arbitrate what has been written and prescribed by the law. And here's what happens when you're under the influence. That notion of justice, that notion of doing what is right, not by power, not by might, but what is right, for notice this, all those who are afflicted, starts to change. Wine makes you dull, and then you're dull to people's suffering. 
And Solomon's mother says, when you're like that, you're no good. You're no good anymore. You have become one who has forgotten what you should do, and you do what you should never do. That is the problem. You see, Solomon's mother understood this. You can disqualify yourself. Yes, that's with bad people. You could be distracted and never get to a goal because you had the wrong goal. That's true. But here's the killer one. You disable yourself from ever getting to the right place because you did it to yourself. Because you disabled your senses. You made light of everything you were supposed to be. She says, that's the problem. That's ultimate disqualification right there. You might say, well, I'm not a king, so does this really apply? And, and what's, really the, what's really the problem anyway? And so Solomon's mom, she's great. She gives a really sarcastic comment to just help you understand what the issues really are in verses 6 and 7. And it kind of reminds me, this is an extreme example that she's giving. It kind of reminds me when I was at a friend's house growing up as a kid, and he was looking at some rat poison, and he said to his dad, Dad, can I, what is this? And he said, rat poison, son. Can I eat it? You have a death wish? No? Then don't eat it. And the logic was, if you have a death wish, sure, that's what it's good for. It's good for killing things. So go for it. But if you don't, then don't do it. And the extreme logic is this. Is this you? If this is you, okay, maybe we'll consider it. But if it's not you, which it really isn't, then don't consider it. And here's what Solomon's mom says. Give strong drink to the perishing. The word perishing in its both lexical form and its grammar often has this idea. The one who is in the state of having perished. In other words, you're dead. So here's what Solomon's mother says. You want to take a drink? Are you dead? No. Okay, then don't do it. You can, you can drink this when you're dead, or maybe even if you're near dead. And here's another one. Give wine to the bitter of soul. Have you ever noticed that when you go up to somebody, they look very angry, they are holding a grudge, and you say, are you bitter? What is their instinctive reaction? Oh, no. No, 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 I'm not bitter. No, no, not me. I'm not, no, no, I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. I, I, I'm, I'm better, but I'm not bitter, you know? And that's what they kind of say. No one wants to admit that they're bitter of soul. That's what makes Naomi so unique in the book of Ruth because she says, I am bitter. You can rename me bitter. I am that bitter. That's, that, that gets people's attention. <coughs> Here, Solomon says, look, are you dead? Or are you dead inside? One of the two. Because if you are, then okay, maybe we'll have that talk. But outside of that, no way. Why? Why? Because this is what alcohol does, according to Proverbs 31. It, it makes you forget your poverty. In other words, it makes you deny reality. You can't even see what's right in front of you. And it makes you live in a delusion because you can't remember, you can't remember your affliction. You can't remember your trouble. Have you ever noticed that when we try to remind ourselves, we always remind ourselves by something outside of ourselves? You have a list of things to do, and it makes you remember. You tie a, a string around your finger, and then it makes you remember. You tie a string around your finger, then you tie another string around your finger to remind you to look at your other finger, which had the string tied to it. That's all that you always do. You always do those kinds of things. You always look at the outside to remember something that's going on in your life. And here's what Solomon says. Here's what wine does, and this is why it's so wrong. It suppresses the truth. 
You can never look outside of yourself ever again and see anything that reminds you of the truth. That's why it's so wrong, because it is anti-truth. It suppresses righteousness. It suppresses everything. And, and you might say, well, wait a minute. If that's really the issue, if really that's what's going on, the suppression of truth, then hypothetically you might be able to drink something and, and not violate this. True. That's why the Bible doesn't explicitly and universally prohibit it. That's why you can drink wine for your stomach in 1 Timothy 5 and all that kind of stuff. Yes, that's what Solomon's mother is getting at here. And you might also say, wait a minute. If that's true, it's not just alcohol that could do that to you. You're right. It's anything that you could possess that helps you to suppress the truth, whether that be a liquid substance or a hard substance or an edible substance, or it could be something like a phone or a hobby or any kind of thing that can distract you from the truth. Solomon's mother says, put that away. Because you may have the best of intentions. And you may not even be disqualified. You may actually have a shot at getting there. But those things, they will drag you down. And you will never get there because you disabled yourself. Solomon's mother says this. Solomon, if there's one thing you can do, just don't waste your life. Don't disqualify yourself with bad people. Don't distract yourself with bad purpose. And don't disable yourself through possessions that will drag you down. Don't do it. Don't do it. And those are lessons we give to our children, but those are lessons we need to receive as children of wisdom. Well, what do you do instead of um, pilfering your life? You practice the truth. That's the final point, verses 8 and 9. 8 and 9. You practice the truth. You open your mouth. It's amazing to think about this phrase, opening your mouth. Because the idea is open your mouth and just let the words come out. And for most of us, if, if I said that to you, you'd say, well, that's pretty dangerous. <laughs> exactly. But what Solomon's mother is saying is, if you are so dedicated to the truth, if you are so dedicated to righteousness, I can tell you to what? Open your mouth. That's the level of dedication. That's the level of immersion. You are so dedicated to the truth, she has no fear she has no hesitation to say, just speak what's on your mind, because whatever comes out, it's going to be right. And it'll be right in every relationship. Why? Because you speak for those who are what? Mute. For those who are passing away and perishing. These are people who have no voice. And yet, while we could be tempted in those situations to treat them in, in convenience or to manipulate them or to just ignore them because they're so forgettable, they don't even have a voice, they're going to be gone anyways— no, you stand for truth in relationships, even in the most extreme relationships. And in verse 9, verse 9, it's not just that you stand for the truth in those relationships. You stand for the truth individually, individually. You open your mouth again, and what do you do? It says, judge righteously, judge righteously. I love that phrase. It's in Deuteronomy, it says this, that every decision you make should establish righteousness. What is righteousness? It is everything aligned to the very standard and character of God. It is everything aligned to exactly the way God would want it to be. That's what you do. Everything in your life, every decision you make, it is about establishing and making things right, reconfiguring them so that they actually match what God would want, knowing that we are imperfect, knowing that we can never do that perfectly. And it all looks forward to the time where it says this in Psalm 96 and 98 and 99, that God, that Yahweh will return and he will judge the earth in righteousness and it will be righteous in the end. 
We are doing everything to anticipate that, to point to that. We know we don't accomplish it on our own, but we know the one who does, and we are pointing and directing everyone to him. That's why even in Matthew 5, it says this, Seek ye first the kingdom and his righteousness. Because we are accomplishing and doing righteousness to point to the one who makes all things right. And so what do, do, should you do instead of wasting your life? You should establish the truth. You should have it so filling your heart and mind that when you open your mouth, it's instinctive. It comes out as righteous. You do it in every single situation, especially when you're tempted to compromise or by convenience not speak for something or someone. And you do it in a way that always points to God's righteousness. It's not just morality. It is righteousness. That's what we're looking for. That's what everything happens. And frankly, let's just put it this way. Why do parents stay up at night? They stay up at night because they wonder, is my kid going to act right? They stay up at night wondering, not just if they're going to act right in one situation, but if they're going to act right throughout their whole life. But here's what Solomon's mother says. Look, if you can open your mouth and you can do it in the times when you're tempted to compromise and you can establish righteousness in the way that's prescribed, then you're living the godly life. You're living a life for the truth. And for a parent, then there's no worry There's only one phrase for that kind of child. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. That's who we need to become, and that's who we are. Now, one final thought. One final thought. A lot of this, you say, man, this is a lot of good advice on parenting. This is what we should be. This is what we should do. This is what we should give. This is what we should receive. Absolutely. It's wise words from a wise woman. But sometimes people still say, is this really noble? Is this really worth it? And there's a response to this, and it's really responding with the question with the question, and that is, people often wonder, how does Proverbs connect with Christ? How does Proverbs connect with Christ? And sometimes people go to Proverbs 8 and talk about the discussion of wisdom there. Sometimes people say, well, it's a royal court, and Jesus is the ultimate king, so there could be a connection there, and that's true. But actually, all of this comes together in verse 2 of Proverbs 31. Notice, did you see, what is it, my son? What son of my womb? What son of my vows? Did you see that word son there? That is not the normal word for son. It's not the normal word for son. I know in English, you can't make a distinction, but this is not the normal Hebrew word. In fact, there is only one other place where this Hebrew word is used. This specific Aramaic borrowed Hebrew word is utilized in all the scriptures. Psalm 2. Kiss the son, lest he be what? Angry with you. Who is that talking about? Jesus. What Solomon's mother knew is that the counsel she is giving is not just for Solomon. It is for every king. Ultimately, which king? Christ. This is his standard. And this is the standard which he alone will what? Fulfill. Because no one can do what is talked about here. No one can truly not pilfer their life and to practice the truth in this perfected and ultimate way except for him. And what Solomon's mom was doing was proclaiming from the rooftops, this is the standard, this is what we're looking forward to. And every son who continues the line of kings and upholds the standard is paving the way and pointing to that ultimate son, the one and only son who will fulfill the line of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this a noble endeavor? There is no better standard than this. 
This is the standard of Jesus. This is the standard for Jesus and that which he fulfills. And there is no better purpose than this because the purpose is unto the Lord Jesus Christ in honor of him. You could think of it this way. Everyone before the first coming was anticipating that coming and everyone between the first coming and the second coming is anticipating the what? The second coming. We are those who point to him by virtue of being this and teaching this and pointing to this. And therefore, therefore, because this is tied with Christ, no vocation, no job, no invention could ever rival this activity because this is tied to the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Personify wisdom. Don't pilfer your life. Practice the truth. That's a message for mothers, and that's a message for all of us. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for your word which is so wise and so insightful. Convict our hearts in how to both give and to receive these truths. Give them to our children. Receive them as children of the most loving Father. Um, And may it all be to your honor, to the honor of the ultimate Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.